You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest was just 13 years old when she met a man during a family camping trip who then began grooming her. Only weeks later, the man would sexually molest and repeatedly rape the year eight schoolgirl. Please welcome to the show to share her story, Ashley Ray. Hi, Ashley. How are you? Hi, Ant. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm doing pretty well these days. Fantastic. It's so good to hear. And here we are on a blissful Sunday. Absolutely. Sundays are the best day. They are. I love them so much. Now, Ashley, can you tell us how did this all start? So I met Michael um, and I use his name because it's publicly available information. Um, And he's also been named in subsequent media articles. So I will use his name. Um, I met him on a family camping trip. Um, Anyone who's ever been camping, especially um, in places where there's um, other people. So not just Mm -hmm. a caravan site, but if you're out bush, and there's designated camping sites, what you tend to do is share resources, especially things like firewood and water um, and toilet paper, ironically. Um, Mm -hmm. And I met him that way because they were in a neighbouring campsite. So that's how this person entered my life. They were camping with their friends and I was with my family. It was Cup Weekend uh, 2004. And it was from that point onwards for the next almost three months that that person remained in my life. Right. I, I mean, even as you're going back to that point you just said, I mean, we actually lived in caravan parks when I was much younger. And to be honest, it is so easy to meet people like that because I myself knew adults through my, my parents and stuff like that, that probably wouldn't go down in the books of the best humans. Um, but it is very, very easy for these people to sort of come into your life and intercept your life. How did he inter- interject himself into your life? Um yeah, I completely know what you mean because my family did the same, lots of caravan mm. parks and camping sites. So um, exactly how we met was uh, we had to cross a bridge to get to the toilet and the bridge was very rickety and not safe one bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you sort of had to go in a group because you had to sort of spot for each other where the holes in the bridge were so you didn't fall through and sure. die on the rocks below. Um, and so we sort of gone over, I was on the way over to the bridge and he'd sort of come over and was walking with us. And it was just a, Hey, how are you? Um, and from that point onwards, you know, for me as a 13 year old, um, I was looking at this person and going, they're 18. Oh my God, they have a car. That's pretty cool. Mm. And it was just getting chatting, having a conversation. And, you know, this was the first person that had shown an interest in me, someone that wasn't completely out of my age range. I mean, they were in many ways, but um, was interested in me and what, what was I doing at school and what music did I like? And I hadn't had that kind of attention, especially from a guy before. Mm. And so that's sort of how it rolled over. And this is, by the way, just, this is before any smartphone ever existed. Yeah. So this was when Nokia 3315s were all the rage. (laughs) Uh, I know them well. I think I've still got one, actually. (laughs) (laughs) They're indestructible. I know. They're amazing. They're the best. Now, do you think that there were signs that this could potentially happen? If not for you, then for, you know, other people that were surrounding you? Absolutely. So, signs, I mean, the biggest red flag here is the age difference. Now, 
there is obviously a legal issue there and that's how I was able to actually seek accountability was based on age. Mm. If I was an adult and this had taken place, it would be a completely different story. It would be seen as a consensual relationship. And to an extent, what took place was seen by the courts as a consensual relationship. Um, So there is the age difference. In Victoria, Mm. you can't have sex with someone who is 13, 14, 15, if you're 18 or older, it's too big an age gap. Um, And the difference in brain development and maturity is enormous. Oh, of course. Exactly. Um, But the other thing is behaviorally what took place was I I know that I changed under their influence Mm. and it was an emotionally abusive relationship. Um, that that sort of unfolded and what happened is this person really pitted themselves um between my family and him so he sort of turned me against my family and all of a sudden the relationships within my family and that dynamic shifted um from me looking at my parents as um a normal 13 year old would like oh they won't let me go to the party or (laughs) see that movie I want to see to um, really combative and really destructive. So this person basically was like an atomic bomb that went off in my life at the time, Um, completely destroyed the relationships with me and family. So those changes are things like, you know, the kinds of clothes that you're wearing when you go out, you know, this person wanted easy access to my body at all times. Mm. They insisted that I wore clothes that gave them that. Um, and I think also just like an un, an uncharacteristic interest in your own body and, um, sort of the sexualization of the body as well took place. Mm. So, you know, when it's out of character for that person, that's a warning sign as well. Yeah. It's funny that you just say that actually about the easy access to your body and stuff like that. It's probably a way for him. It was a timely thing. So with a person like that, they're probably scared they're going to get caught. So having something be able to be accessed really quickly is going to be a good thing for them because that's those few seconds of time that they're not going to get caught if that, you know, someone's coming around a corner or whatever. Yeah. And that's true. And that was, you know, another warning sign, I suppose, and this this is going to really depend on the relationship that the child has with the parents as well and and any caregiver is what kind of environment is this person leading them into so if so for me as a 13 year old this was a relationship this was my first boyfriend i did not understand that i couldn't consent to this being a relationship it legally just couldn't happen yeah um and this person would pick me up from my house and drive me to you know sometimes we go to the shopping center um, like, you know, your local Westfield and you'd yeah. go and do things. Um, but then a lot of the time I'd be taken off into an area that I didn't know. It was dark. There were no houses around. There's no street lights. This is before teenagers had mobile phones. Mm. Um, and, and the abuse would take place there on the side of a road in a ditch or something like that. And it was this real, um, Like I never knew what was going to happen. Was I going to be taken to the middle of nowhere and things were going to happen there? Or was it going to happen in a Westfield car park? Yeah. (laughs) I think that a lot of people don't realize the differences of 
even back then to today, because going back to the point of uh, what I made before about the caravan parks, I remember when I was much younger, I would have been probably the same age as you were then, about 13. Um, And I remember there was a bunch of us kids that used to hang around together and there was a really big vacant lock of land, good land at the back of the caravan park um, where, I don't know, some people that used to have their horses there for a while. But all I really remember was there was a caravan which was so far away, it was in that back area. So it was actually quite a fair way away from the rest of the caravan park. And I remember there was a whole group of us this day and an old man used to live in there. And we were in this guy's, this old man's caravan. And he was, I can't even remember what he was showing us. He was showing us something. But then I remembered that he was sitting there with no clothes on one day. And here are these. Just for fun. Just sitting there with no clothes on or he got changed in front of us or something like that. I mean, there were young girls about my age. There were kids younger than me. There was probably about five or six of us. And it just goes to show the difference of back then to today, that would probably never happen today because there would be so many eyes watching those children because they're more aware these days of what the potential things that can happen are. A hundred percent. And you can bet that that guy would have ended up on the sex offender registry. Yeah, definitely. He probably already is, <laughs> if not dead. Now, did, um, did he threaten you at all or tell you to keep it a secret? No, and that's sort of the insidious thing about sexual abuse is there's an assumption that you're always threatened. And Mm. I suppose the threats vary. People assume that it's something like you're held at knife point. And that's not necessarily what takes place. What took place for me was this person would, I mean, they did threaten me in a way. They would say that they would leave. Mm. And that's incredibly exploitative of my vulnerabilities as a child. I was terrified of abandonment. It had happened before with my dad who, um, wasn't involved in my life for a very, very long time. I didn't want to be abandoned. Mm. Um, Excuse me, just got a hiccup happening. Um, So that was the threat that kept coming up. Like, if you don't do this, I'll leave you. Um, But it wasn't, I'm going to put a knife to you. And especially too, that he's also created that distance between your family already. So therefore this person has become that major person in your life because you're already combating them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, you know, they had created that distance, the conflict so that they were the safe haven as well as, you know, and and not to mention the power imbalance, Mm. you know, with this person who was much older, had much more life experience than me at 13. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I know you went through a dark period where you were diagnosed with complex PTS and suffered flashbacks, night terrors and anxiety. Can you tell us about that time? Oh, the dark times. The dark times. Yeah, look, it's not fun. Um, Something that happens quite commonly with sexual abuse survivors is um, it is repressed for a long time because you can't cope. You don't have the skills, knowledge or support to cope with what's happened to you. So your brain just shuts it away. It's literally just, I remember for a number of years that I could remember things up to a certain point and then it was like static, you know, like on the old VHS, I couldn't remember what happened next. And then one day it all came out and it was just a flood of memories and I couldn't cope with it. It was too much. And you suffer the psychological injury Mm. um, because for so long you weren't able to cope with it. You couldn't process it or integrate it or understand it. So it just sort of explodes. Um, 
and it wasn't fun. I was in a mental health crisis for the better part of two years. I was medicated up to my eyeballs. I was suicidal. I was given the wrong medication. Um, I had a doctor who was not great. Um, really, I think they were having their own mental health crisis at the mm. same time. Um, and it's not fun. And I'm still in recovery for that. And I don't know that it is ever something that you can completely be free from. Yeah. I've not met anyone who's ever said, I am completely symptom free. I'm completely trauma recovered. I've never met someone who's ever been able to 100% in all confidence. Tell me that. Mm. Um, and you know, it changes the symptomology changes for me this year. Sleep has become a real issue. It was previously sort of on and off, but this year it's like hit hard. Yeah. Um, and flashbacks are also really difficult. You can't control them to the point where you can stop them before they become an issue because it has to enter your consciousness first. Mm. But, you know, I, I was in court a lot this year and having flashbacks to being in the courtroom, um, seeing the face of the perpetrator. I hadn't seen them for like nearly 16 years. Um, it was a lot and you yeah. relive it as if it's actually happening and it takes a huge toll on your body. You can't work, you can't study. Um, it's really, really tough. Mm. So w thinking back to that point, were you at that stage? Cause I mean, 13 for me, I was still very innocent. I didn't even know the word sex. I didn't even know that people had sex. <laughs> were you at that? Were you the same? Were you really like, just did it just come um, out of the blue sort of thing? <laughs> Look, I'm quite lucky to come from a family that was pretty open about, you know, if you have questions, right. you know, um, you know, of course, ask your mum and dad. Um, so, you know, I had questions because, you know, mm. kids at school would say things or, you know, you'd obviously go through sex ed at school, but, you know, at the primary school level. Um, and, you know, to a point they were pretty open and, I knew my body was changing mm. and I had questions about that, which led into more discussions about sex and relationships with my family. But, um, you know, my biggest thing when I was 13 is I still wanted to be a pop star. I was yeah. going to be bigger than Britney Spears. Oh, so was I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to take the stage with Nikki Webster who, you know, oh, um, Australian it. darling. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because I, I suppose it's showing my age because I'm 51. So back when I was 13 and, and coming even back then, we didn't talk about sex. Like it, it just never happened and not in my family, like at all. So even when I was 13 and 14 and stuff like that, I didn't like, I used to hear things and see things and stuff, but it just never sunk in, I suppose. Like, and I never questioned it. I just was like, oh, that's weird. And move on. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't until about the ages of 15, 16, where things started to happen, where I was sort of discovering sex. And then that was through friends from school and, and stuff like that. And that's basically where my interludes happened. But um, I think that people have got to remember that the age of 13 is very different now being a 13 year old to when you and I were 13. It was a very different time. Oh my God. Yeah. Because we didn't have smartphones that we could go to RedTube or Pornhub yeah, on. Yeah. Those things didn't even exist then. I mean, YouTube was just being born, I think a couple of years later. Yeah. And we went dropping <laughs> it's like it's hot and doing bum dances and everything else that 
children are doing these days and I just think, oh my God, what is the world coming to? Subscribe to Ants Talk. So why did it take so long for him to be charged? As I know, it was only this year that he pleaded guilty to charges relating to the case. Yeah, so, I mean, I reported, I tried to report this in uh, 2014, but I was told that the statute of limitations had run out, which basically means you've got a certain period of time in which you can charge someone with a crime, Mm. especially of this nature, and that time was up. Um, And I was out by, I think, a year, maybe two years at that point. Um, And then... I had my big mental health crisis. (laughs) Yay. Such a fun time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I went to police again in 2017 because I still wasn't coping. I was still having a really, really difficult time. I couldn't maintain employment. I couldn't study. I was living in poverty. Um, And I just said, I need to talk to someone at a minimum. I think this needs to be reported. Um, And I did. And the police, you know, I'm very lucky that I had a good interaction with Victoria police. They were really professional. They're actually very helpful. And immediately upon um, meeting me, they referred me to therapy um, and to victim assistance services, which were crucial in me being able to actually have meaningful recovery. Mm. Um, But it took them a long time to do the investigation. So charges weren't actually laid. Uh, until I think 2018, but they weren't charged or sorry, they weren't. No, it might've been actually 2019. The timeline's a little bit fuzzy here because it took them a long time to do the investigation. Mm. Um, our detectives, unfortunately, are very overworked, especially yeah, when. Yeah. So we had a change in the law in Victoria, which meant that suddenly you could prosecute historical cases of sexual violence. And they had been overwhelmed with people coming forward who wanted that accountability. Um, And obviously the priorities for cases like mine was historical. It wasn't like there was a, I was reporting someone right now who was going Mm -hmm. around doing this to multiple people. Um, So it was until I think 2019, they were finally sort of arrested and charged Um, and they were brought before the courts. We had our first day in court in January of 2020, right before, um, I hope I'm allowed to swear just a little bit, right (laughs) before the shit hit the fan of 2020. Yeah, (laughs) crazy. When they are looking at that sort of stuff, did you need to provide evidence or proof or anything like that? And how did you do that? I mean, it's pretty hard to provide the physical evidence Mm. 15 years later. Um, So you can't do that. So I spoke to them. A a lot of it is, you know, what you say in your statement. Yeah. yeah. Um, So I had to give a statement. It took me about seven hours to do. It was grueling. Um, It's also very clinical. Um, People don't realize how clinical it is when you go to police and give a statement. You have to name body parts and with the level of, lack of education, I guess we have about naming our body parts properly and in detail as well. So it's not just the penis, it's the shaft of the penis or the tip of the penis. So you've got to be that detailed. And for women, we, you know, sorry, men, but I think our biology is a bit more complex. There's a lot more things to name (laughs) (laughs) and we don't know that. So you know, I sat in a room with this this detective who had a chart of the female genitalia where everything was labelled 
um, clinically. So he'd be like, well, was it this bit, this bit or this bit? Wow. Okay. And which body part went where? Because, you know, I would just say, you know, what the average person on the street would say, like, you know, this went here and there you go. And he goes, well, no, specifically tell me, did it go there or there? Um, and often sometimes, you know, I couldn't actually speak and I had to point because it was too, too painful to speak. So everything I said in my statement, they had to corroborate. Um, in my case in particular, they had um, some mandatory reporters involved um, and it lined up with what other people were able to say as well. Yeah. Um, and that's what a lot of the investigation sort of came down to is, can this be corroborated that these two people knew each other? Um, and there's also the, the level of detail that you're able to give in mm. the statement as well. So interesting. Um, why did he do no jail time? Do we know? Oh, this is a good one. This is a strap yourselves in is what I'm going to say. Um, so I just want to be really clear that this person was charged with four counts um, that automatically placed them on the sex offender registry. Each of these counts carries a 10 year jail sentence. They should be in jail at, you know, based on what they're charged with for 40 years. Um, but they're not going to spend a single night in jail, not even half an hour. <laughs> um, they, they basically got off with 200 hours of community service, 50 hours of which can be used for therapy. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, they were placed on the sex offender registry for a very, very short period of time. Um, they were supposed to be on there for life based on what they were charged with. Cause it was very serious offending. Mm. Um, however, the sentence was very heavily mitigated by the fact that they were considered to be a young offender at the time. And because at present, um, they are seen to be a person of good standing in the community, um, which, you know, unfortunately perpetrators come in all shapes and sizes. You can still be um, a person that does good things in the community and an offender. I mean, so Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein alone gave money to charities. Hello. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they got no jail time at all. Um, they also, he got himself off the sex offender registry. So we have this stupid law in Victoria that says if you're aged between 18 and no more than 19 at the time that you do some offending, you might be eligible to be exempted from the registry. Um, you have to do this application within a set time frame. There's certain criteria that has to be met and assuming that that's okay, then you can be exempted. So he spent three months to the day on the registry out of a life sentence. So he literally, he got away with 200 hours of community corrections. Wow. Yeah. That's just unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Welcome to the, welcome to the mess of Victoria. <laughs> thing I don't even think it's just Victoria. I think this would happen in a lot of states, unfortunately. That's um, the moment. I'm, uh, I'm sure many people that are listening have, have seen different reports, probably not even in Australia, probably all over the world, where so many people like that are getting away with blue murder because judges are letting them off and giving them light sentences 
or giving them discounted sentences because they're, they're pleading guilty to the crime, which I think is ridiculous because if you're pleading guilty to the crime, then you need to do the time. You don't get a discount because you've said, yes, I did it. That is just just ridiculous to me. Um, and I've been finding especially even cases here in South Australia of late where they're getting off after they're supposed to do four years, the judge will give them two years or, oh, you've already done six, uh, three months in jail. That's enough. Off you go. Back to freedom. Back to offending. Mm. It's just, it's shocking. The, the laws really need to change around this. They really do. Absolutely, they do. Now, you recently risked your own freedom by giving, uh, for giving a story to news.com.au to tell your story. And this is when you found out about the Victorian government had relaxed laws around naming yourself. Why is this? Oh, again, welcome to Victoria. <laughs> so in February of this year, 2020, the government here introduced um, amendments to the judicial Judicial Proceedings and Reports Act of 1958. Um, and that basically means that in order for any survivor with a conviction in Victoria, so basically if you've been through the legal system and the offender either pled guilty or was found guilty, um, you can't publicly be identified under your real name. Um, and not, you can't get around that by hinting or, you know, Allegedly, sort of, you know, that, yeah, you can't get around it that way. If you identify the survivor in any way, shape or form, um, first of all, media can be fined for it, hefty, quite hefty fines. I think it's up to $8,000 mm. um, per infraction. Um, and for a survivor, you couldn't publicly, you can't, you can't use your real name in the public sphere in any way, shape or form, whether that's in a blog post that you yourself write whether that's a podcast interview like what we're doing now um, or a television or newspaper article, you can't be identified um, without the court's permission or you can be thrown in jail for up to four months and fined up to $4,000, which is insane that they would do that. Um, and they didn't have really a good remedy for how you could actually get permission. Um, so I was very fortunate to get help from the Let Us Speak campaign, which is run by uh, Nina Fennell, Mark Lawyers and Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy, um, Rosara, um, who helped me get a court order. And I was awarded a court order, which basically restored the right to my real name and voice so that I could be publicly identified if I chose to. So I have mm -hmm. that. It's my favourite piece of paper. Um, unfortunately, though, there's only, I think, about 13 people in the whole state of Victoria right now who have that. Mm. Um, everyone else who's spoken out and has a conviction is at risk. Um, right now, I'm not sure if this has made the news in other states, but right now the Victorian government is really in a bit of a bind because they've done a dodgy thing. Um, they haven't actually considered what this law means for deceased survivors or victims mm. so these are people that have had quite high profile cases so the sexual homicide cases um so this particularly relates to cases like jill ma or eurydice yeah. dixon or i am asawi um technically right now the media is massively in breach of reporting on that because they don't have the courts you know the families don't have a court order that says that they can actually grant that permission to the media. 
Um, in practice, what this looks like right now is should, should the bill be upheld in our parliament and proceed as it's looking like it might, it means that every news outlet that has ever reported on those cases, and these, these are just example cases, it doesn't have to be just these ones, but they're going to have to take down every article, every podcast, every blog post, anything that mentions their name. Um, and the sort of clincher to this is you can refer to them, but in a very roundabout way by saying Adrian Bailey's victim. Mm. And I cannot imagine a more horrific way to refer to someone than like that. It is absolutely abhorrent that the government will force us into that position. Um, there's currently a bit of debate around how do we handle this because it's not just about sexual homicide victims, which we really do need to consider the rights of the families to privacy and the wishes of that person if they were known while they were alive. Mm. But we also need to consider the fact that, you know, one day we're all going to die. <laughs> um, so I will die at some point, whether that's today, tomorrow, or in 20 years from now, what have you. Um, and then what happens to my voice and my name is anything that I work on going to be erased pending my family needing to get a court order. So mm. my family will have to fork out extra money for a lawyer, maybe five to $10,000, depending on how easy the process is at that point um, to obtain the court's permission to ensure that my legacy isn't erased. Yeah. That's which crazy. is a joke. <laughs> Actually that just, baffles me that you could get more jail time than he ever got purely by wanting to name yourself. Exactly. So just, yeah, and this is how sexual violence often works. It's silencing, it's shame and being it able makes, to speak out. It makes out. me wonder, it really makes me wonder the undercurrents of all this and why this is happening. Somebody in a higher power obviously wants to silence victims. That's, that's how I look at it. Yep. And I often have to, you know, scratch my head and say who would want to do that and why. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I've had the thought that maybe someone is a perpetrator that doesn't want to be outed. Yeah, I agree. I completely <laughs> agree there. I really do. I think it's, I think it's got a, there's a lot of questions to be answered in that whole realm. I think definitely. Yes. Now, what signs would you tell others to look out for in a similar situation, even if it is other family members? So the first one is the age difference, because that's a huge red flag. An 18-year-old or older should not be dating someone who is under the age of 16. Mm. They shouldn't even be trying to have a relationship there because it's not age appropriate. The difference in maturity, brain development, um, and also just the legal age of consent yeah. is a huge issue. Um, so if you have an 18 year old who's trying to become involved with a 13 or 14 year old, it is straight off the bat wrong. There's no circumstance under which that could be allowed to happen because you just run the risk of situations like this unfolding. Um, mm. Something else I want to mention and all of this is a little bit of a contentious topic, but something that came up in my case was an issue of um, the offender possibly being on the autism spectrum. And we've seen this reported in media a lot with sexual offending, mm. um, especially with the um, man, James Todd, who murdered Eurydice Dixon. Um, it was brought up that he was on the autism spectrum as well. And 
it's not a cop out. <laughs> um, but I think when we have people who maybe are on things like the spectrum, it's really important that we do educate the families and the kids involved about what is and is not consent. Mm. Um, because those are extra challenges in that sphere. They can be extra tough to understand because social um, social interactions are hard for people on the spectrum. They're mm. different. They can be difficult. They can be really, really um, nerve-wracking and horrible to go through for them. Um, so that needs to change. We need to have stronger education and resources for families with kids on the spectrum because it's... We, we shouldn't be seeing this happen. No. It just shouldn't be a thing that happens. Especially, especially when they could be a genius in something like maths needs to happen is at home. Their parents need to teach them, educate them about interactions with other people, what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate, especially around sexuality and sexual actions and whatever it may be. That all comes down to education. That is, that is all it is, is, is having open discussions about it. So they're all yeah, there. 100%. And parents often stick their head in the sand and I get it. There's so much to deal with as a parent these mm. days. Um, but this is one of those things that's really crucial. I mean, yeah. this is something that you really need to get right because the harm that can be done to the child as, you know, whether they become an offender or possibly a victim is, is tremendous. Mm. And, and it can be prevented, not in all cases, but, you know, there's a good majority we can prevent that in. Yeah, I agree. Completely agree. Now, Ashley, um, how can others get help telling their story? This is a really, um, this is something that's very, very important to me. So I think every survivor has the right to choose if, how, and when, and to whom they tell their story. Mm. Um, It's not for everybody. And you might just choose to tell the people who are closest in your life so maybe your best friends or some family, what have you, that's totally all right. You might want to write a book. That's okay too. If you want to get the rights to a movie, that might be a longer process and you, you know, have a crack at it, see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I personally um, started connecting with journalists on Twitter um, and it took a long time. I had to work through a lot of the shame and, the issues that arose for me around wanting to be a public voice and wanting to share my story. Um, But once you get there, once you work through those issues and those are things like what happens if other people that I know see it, like my family, like my boss, you know, there's a lot that can come up because you're also exposed to trolls. You're exposed to, Mm. you know, horrible moments of your life are there for public display. Um, and it should always be within your power and control as to what you share and how much. Um, if you want your story told, reach out to the journalists. Um, you can choose. You're not at the behest of just Channel 7. You can, mm. you know, talk to the ABC, talk to SBS, write it down first, get the story how you want it told in your mind first. So write it down is one of my best recommendations start writing it it's a great idea actually i really appreciate you coming onto the show and i think it shows such strength in what you've done to go and report this even at a later date again just to try and get some sort of confirmation about what happened to you and i think that 
what you're doing and passing it on to other people, being able to tell their stories, it's, it's really showing a, a, a true strength of your own personality. And I think it's absolutely amazing. You should be very proud of yourself. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate you having me on the show. My pleasure. You have a beautiful Sunday and I shall speak to you soon. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.